So prevention with positives, um, the objectives of this are just to review uh, where prevention services fit in HIV clinical settings, to review the evidence that HIV treatment providers in particular are effective at delivering brief prevention counseling. I've already showed that you can be effective in prescribing medicine that will help um, prevent HIV transmission to others. But also I want to make the point that um, you can be effective counselors as well. And I also then want to end on talking about recommendations for STD screening in HIV patients. So there's now um, a big shift in what we think of as part as components of effective HIV prevention. Ten years ago, maybe a little bit longer, I think maybe ten years ago things were starting to change. But remember, HIV prevention used to be something that, you know, a health department or community-based organizations were responsible for. They were mostly focused on... Uh, individuals whose behavior put them at risk for getting HIV, but they were HIV negative, um, so they were so they were supposed to learn their status, and then somehow through this testing counseling experience, they were supposed to be empowered. Um, the focus, the goal was to empower them to change behavior. So the focus was offer HIV testing to targeted groups, to people that you recognize to be at risk, to um, offer behavioral counseling to the if they were negative so that they could remain negative, and then to refer for care, this is kind of a passive thing, to refer for care if you found them to be positive. But I think the current prevention focus has shifted and it will probably shift even more. I think now instead of just going after um, people who are at risk but then referring them for care if they're positive, it's important to actively seek um, to test everybody because we can't even recognize who's at risk. Um, test broadly and perhaps repeatedly um, and to link to care and then to treat and to, to create systems that really support people in being retained in care. So it used to be, um, I think this is now um, an old battle, I think, but it used to be that people would fight in a community over what was a prevention dollar allocation and what was care dollars. And we realize now um, that this is a false dichotomy in prevention isn't uh, the enemy of care, prevention is care, care is prevention. So this slide just uh, depicts graphically, um, this actually is borrowed from Laura Cheever, it was published in uh, CIDS several years ago. Prevention now includes engaging people in care and keeping them in care along the full continuum of care so that they can receive prevention messages be supported in their efforts to prevent transmission of HIV to others and start on antiretroviral treatment, which will further um, decrease the risk that they will reduce HIV, um, they will reduce uh, the risk of transmitting HIV to others. So this is something that, you know, people, any individual over time, they could be unaware of their HIV status and then become aware, but they can, they can have one visit with a care provider, but then not see them again. Um, and what our goal is, is for everybody to be fully engaged in care so that they can access all the benefits of antiretroviral treatment, both for themselves and for the wider community. So there are guidelines that have been published on how um, clinical providers should incorporate HIV transmission into the care of people living with HIV. These are a little bit old, and at the time that they were written, there probably wasn't a large database to support all of the recommendations. But the recommendations for providers basically um, went, fell into four components. The guidelines recommended that 
providers conduct a risk assessment at every regular visit, and that was generally defined as quarterly. The guidelines recommended that, that providers test for STDs, um, in particular gonorrhea, chlamydia, and syphilis, the curable bacterial STDs at baseline, and then thereafter at annual inter intervals um, that they test again if there are symptoms suggestive of an STD or in, they test more frequently, screen more frequently in individuals who, have, who are elevated because of their risk behaviors. They recommended that providers um, deliver prevention counseling messages when they, rec when, they, when they discover active transmission behaviors during the risk assessment and that they um, make efforts to ensure notification and referral of sex and needle sharing partners uh, for testing and for care. So what prevention services do patients actually get from their medical providers other than antiretroviral treatment, which is now a prevention service? Well, 10 years ago, um, probably the answer seemed to be that they weren't getting very much or what they were getting um, was perhaps not viewed as something that was, uh, that was a prevention service, at least by patients. So this is a these are data from a community-based survey. This was published about 10 years ago in AIDS. Men were recruited from, um, from venues, gay bars or clubs in New York City, in two cities, New York City and San Francisco. And they were asked about their risk behavior and then they were asked about their engagement and care and what types of discussions they'd ever had with healthcare providers about safer sex. And you can see that the minority, though many um, had high risk behaviors in the past three months, uh, only a minority, only under a quarter said that their healthcare provider had or I'm sorry, a, a significant minority said that their healthcare provider had never spoken to them about safer sex. And the ones that did say that they'd had safer sex discussions said that um, they were more likely, that was more likely to have occurred if the individual accessed care in a public clinic setting rather than a private clinic setting. Again, another survey, this was um, funded by uh, the HIV AIDS Bureau of, of HRSA, uh, looked at patients exiting from six public clinics, Ryan White funded clinics in California, and um, asked them about what they discussed with their provider that day or in the past. And the majority said that their provider had talked to them at least once about safer sex. Um, only half said that their medical provider had ever talked to them about disclosure of their HIV status to sex partners. And uh, status of being MSM and white race were actually associated with a lower chance of any sort of provider counseling about these behaviors. So it was clear based upon uh, these two reports that there was a lot more that could be done in the clinic setting, that there were a lot of missed opportunities, and there were a lot of needs perhaps among provider, both medical provider and non-provider staff to, um, to learn more about how to better deliver prevention services to their patients. So I've tried to summarize on this slide the evidence base for, provider, for the effectiveness of provider-delivered brief intervention counseling in HIV clinics. There were two reports that came out um, in about seven or eight years ago that showed that very, very brief um, counseling interventions about safer sex or about not having uh, sex in the context of drug use or about uh, thinking about reducing your your drug use or your alcohol use when you're going to have sex. Um, these two large uh, brief intervention type um, trials showed that provider delivered risk reduction counseling could have an effect. 
One was done in California. It focused largely on, um, on an MSM population, was largely what was enrolled. There were six clinics. They were randomized to, to three different arms. One delivered loss frame messages. The providers were trained to do that, which meant that their brief messages focused on consequences um, rather than um, rather than, you know, feeling good. Uh, the gain frame messages was the second randomization arm, and that meant that, that meant that the providers were trained to talk positively about the benefits of using a condom or about having safer sex. And then the third arm was the control arm, which uh, the providers were trained to deliver better adherence counseling. So the loss frame counseling was most effective, and it was particularly effective in, in patients who had reported unprotected sexual encounters in patients with multiple casual partners, so a very important group. Then a second clinical trial that showed that providers could effectively uh, deliver risk reduction counseling was called the Options Project. In this, uh, there were two large HIV clinics in Connecticut where one was randomized to um, to train providers to deliver motivational interviewing uh, to reduce unprotected anal and vaginal encounters. And at 18 months, that showed a difference um, compared to the control clinic where providers were um, trained to give another type of counseling. In addition, I'm going to show you the results of uh, a large um, Prevention with Positives SPINs-funded um, set of demonstration projects. 15 clinic settings about six or seven years ago throughout the United States were trained to deliver prevention with positive services. And there were three, largely three different types of um, prevention delivery mechanisms. There were some clinics that delivered the prevention intervention through a prevention specialist, which was often a peer or some type of person with counseling experience, specialty counseling experience. in some cases, a clinician delivered uh, the brief intervention counseling, and then some of the prevention with positive interventions were mixed. And this is just a summary slide of how these SPINS clinic projects fared in um, how the interventions compared to standard of care. Slightly the best performer in terms of reduction over baseline uh, was the medical care delivered brief interventions. Um, prevention specialist interventions also had some efficacy um, at a shorter time point, at six months. And, uh, and the mixed models, um, are, which are here in, well, they're in purple. So that's actually, it's actually purple X's with brown lines here um, had, initial, had initial response, but then it wasn't sustained at 12 months. The, Data Coordinating Center for the SPINS project did a cost-effectiveness analysis on the effective interventions. They calculated how much they cost, and um, then they did cost-effectiveness comparisons to, to um, standard of care, and they, they also compared each individual intervention to all sites combined. Because the provider interventions were so brief and because they were um, they were bundled into the overall medical encounter. There was very little cost um, per patient. They also reached more patients because the patients didn't have to make an extra stop. So the two clinician-delivered interventions, which were both brief, they both involved trained provider interventions giving counseling messages according to a stage of change um, behavior model, had an average cost of about... um, 
146,000 over the course of the period of course or about $17 a minute. And they both resulted in, on average, about $107,000 per HIV case estimated to avert HIV infection transmission to others. The other models were less effective. So I tell you this just to point out that providers can make a difference, at least the evidence base suggests this, in settings which they've been introduced in which trained providers are delivering counseling messages according to specific models, even when there's very little time. So providers always say there's not enough time. There's a lot of evidence that providers are overburdened and that they have too much to do. So there needs to be a lot of system support in order for HIV clinic providers in particular to fit this into their practice. So what does it take in order for clinics to do this successfully? Well, medical providers have to accept the role. There's probably also an important role for non-medical providers. Some providers, probably most, will need some sort of training in behavioral counseling. It isn't something that is acquired naturally, and it's not something that most of us had in medical school. And then care systems and administrators must also support them. There should be some way to get reimbursement for STD screening and also for the counseling that should go along with it. And providers need to be trained sometimes to know how to bill for this particular service. In addition, in order to reach partners and in order to often retain people in care in order to deliver these prevention messages, HIV clinics probably also need to develop very strong relationships with health departments. So I was also asked to address STD screening. This was, as you'll recall in a prior slide, recommended as one of the components of prevention services in clinic-based settings in the 2003 guidelines. And generally, the recommendation was to do this annually. The STD treatment guidelines have been updated recently, and a new version was published in MMWR in 2010 in a December issue. Generally, the STD guidelines, which my slides here are based upon, do not necessarily recommend that any different type of STD screening occur in HIV-infected women compared to other women. So standard chlamydia screening practices would be to annually screen for chlamydia in women who are age 25 and under, to use a nucleic acid amplification test, and to screen annually. But certainly, additional testing should be done if a woman presents with symptoms or a woman has higher risk behavior than average. Gonorrhea screening guidelines vary actually by geographic distribution of gonorrhea. So if somebody is thought to be at increased risk if they reside in a state or in a city where gonorrhea rates are very high, that's not really a practical thing for practitioners to apply. I think that in general, gonorrhea and chlamydia tests are done together in the laboratory, so it makes sense to screen for gonorrhea whenever you're screening women for chlamydia. The recommended tests would be nucleic acid amplification tests or culture, and the screening intervals recommended are not specified in the STD treatment guidelines for 2010. Again, it's generally recommended to screen for syphilis because the tests are so low cost in all people presenting for HIV care. The evidence base for this really didn't exist when this recommendation was made back in the 1980s when care recommendations for HIV were first 
were first created, um, but it's still recommended generally for annual screening. And certainly in pregnancy, it's important to screen for uh, these three STDs at the first antenatal visit as well. Now, the STD treatment guidelines really for the first time in this last version have a longer section um, devoted to STD screening in MSM. And so I've taken, I've tried to summarize the principal results um, here. This, um, they didn't separate out any differences in HIV positive MSM compared to other MSM. But the important thing to know is that I think if you learn one thing, just realize that urine-based testing is very convenient, but it's not going to pick up urine or chlamydia that could be very common in, um, in your MSM patients. So screen for urethral gonorrhea or chlamydia if your partner, if, if your patient reports being the insertive partner in the last year. Uh, the preferred test would be a NACS, a nucleic acid amplification test, and it would be convenient if you did that on urine. Um, the frequency of screening recommended is at least annual, but more if high risk. High risk is generally defined as uh, a man who would have anonymous sex partners, who would have um, sex in the context of drug use, particularly meth use, and in that, those cases, screening every three to six months might be appropriate. Rectal gonorrhea or chlamydia screen if uh, the individual reports being the receptive partner in the last year. Nucleic acid amplification tests are preferred. It's important to point out that these tests aren't FDA cleared, but many laboratories will do them for you because they validated their, um, the, the tests that they use internally. I think if you have a large MSM population and you use laboratories that haven't, that don't offer that, you should try to lobby for that as being important for your patient population. The frequency of testing would be at least annual, but more if an individual was high risk as defined here. Uh, oral pharyngeal gonorrhea, it's recommended to screen if they were re the receptive oral partner in the last year. Um, again, NATS tests are not validated. Culture is acceptable. It's not recommended to screen for chlamydia, though you might automatically get that test because, as I mentioned, gonorrhea and chlamydia testing um, is often bundled in many laboratory settings. It's not felt that chlamydia um, trachomatis is an important pathogen in the oropharynx. Syphilis testing, um, if sexually active, it's a serologic test, so it requires a blood draw. Uh, it's recommended to screen at least annually, but again, more frequently if, if a person meets uh, this, this high-risk definition. It's a little bit controversial when to test, uh, when to use a serologic test for HSV2. Um, so the expert panel uses the word consider, which means that there was disagreement among them as to whether or not that should always be recommended or not. Certainly many MSM who come to your clinic because they have HIV will already have herpes, and um, there's no need to test if that's already been established by some sort of um, direct viral detection mechanism. But a serologic test could be considered if somebody had symptoms suggestive but had never been, but had never been diagnosed, or perhaps if a person simply wanted to know and that would be a reasonable test to do at baseline. Testing for hepatitis B and C is often standard in um, the panel of tests that we get when people come into the HIV clinic setting. I think the one thing to say in particular about hepatitis C is that it's, there's a growing recognition that this is a sexually transmitted disease. In particular circumstances, it might be commonly transmitted. The, the epidemics um, of MSM who have gotten treated for um, lymphogranuloma venarium or a, a type of um, hemorrhagic proctitis 
Um, there has been a lot of some some epidemics have described co-transmission of HCV without using injection drugs in those sexual networks. So it's important to know that to um, perhaps be on guard for it if, and to be vigilant for it if you treat a patient for LGV proctitis, for example, because certainly early uh, detection of HCV might increase the chance that they will respond very well to, to therapy for HCV. So I wanted to end with an audience response question. Is this um, possible to to change this to that format. So which of the following represents your practice most closely? One, I screen for gonorrhea, chlamydia, and syphilis only at baseline in all of my HIV patients. Two, I screen for gonorrhea, chlamydia, and syphilis every year in all of my HIV positive patients. Three, I screen for gonorrhea, and chlamydia, and syphilis every year in, oh, that's the same question, okay. <laughs> well, we'll see what the difference between two and three is. Or four, my HIV positive patients are not at risk for gonorrhea, chlamydia, or syphilis, so there is no need to screen. So it looks like most of you screen for the treatable, curable bacterial STDs every year in all of your patients. Um, so good, there was, a, that's I guess about 92%. Great. Thank you. We'll, we'll, go, to, we'll go to the right Very nice. Yeah. Have a seat because we're going to be here for a while. So this, this is nice because we're going to have a lot of time for questions and answers and discussion. And I think what Emily, I think, and the NIAID are interested in is uh, our reflection on the, especially the 052 data and how that's going and how this will be incorporated. Let, let me kick off with one question that we didn't have a chance to talk about, which is PrEP as prevention. And I was particularly struck with your um, presentation of the provider-delivered uh, prevention message for positives. It's estimated about $107,000 per case prevented. By my back-of-the-envelope calculation, using the PrEP data as presented, assuming missed doses, et cetera, it's about $1.8 million per case prevented. And so is there, I'm not asking you to speak on behalf of the NIAID, but just as a clinician provider, how do you absorb the PrEP data, and especially with regard to 052 coming out? Yeah, just bring it, bring it close, and it'll, it'll, it'll kick on automatically. So... I don't, yeah, I don't think by anybody's analysis, um, PrEP, at least domestically, is a cost-effective strategy. Right. Tenofovir FTC, the, the regimen that was used in IPREX. And certainly, you know, from a systems level, it seems like, you know, HIV treatment providers often don't see partners, so the, or the HIV-negative partners. So right. there's a whole different group of people, and there's a whole different system that would have to... Um, capture those individuals should PrEP be deployed anyway. I think PrEP is, is a tough thing to, um, you know, it's tough to know what to say about Tenofovir FTC right now based upon the results. Well, we don't know what the results are, but there was a study in women called FemPrep. It was not domestic. It was um, international, Stop largely that. in Africa. But it stopped early in April because it was ineffective. Um, very high risk women, very high incidence of HIV, 
and there was no difference, there was not going to be a difference in the arm that was randomized to receive FTC tenofovir compared to placebo control. So we don't understand, so, you know, this seems to be a, a prevention intervention that might work uniquely for MSM. Maybe there's something about the rectal mucosa, you know, being the mucosal barrier that HIV crosses in many MSM encounters where HIV is transmitted that is different than what would be required to protect women. So, you know, different for women and for men, we don't understand that. What, um, what, um, how, do, how do you deploy a prevention strategy, you know, let alone the cost of it, when you can only do it for one gender? That's right. something that's going to be very difficult to, yeah. to know how to, how to roll it out. So I'll give, you, I'll give you my feedback on the 052 data in regards to that and see if I'll just have a show of hands if people agree or disagree. I don't know if you agree, you raise your hand when I get done. But that is, from my perspective, when the 052 data were presented publicly in the press release, my reaction was, wow, this is great. And secondly, as far as I was concerned, it's pretty much the end of PrEP uh, as a major movement. Uh, would people agree with that? If you agree, raise your hand. If you, all right. So there's not as much agreement as I would have guessed. All right, that's fine. Uh, let's go to the questions in the back. Oh, well. Hi, my name is Pam. I'm a nurse at Healthcare for the Homeless in Boston. I have a question about the 052. You, you made a point of saying in the U.S. there were very few participants in the study. And my question is, in, for the other countries, is the reason that participants agreed to participate, even though they might be randomized to del the delayed arm, is because they were told that, well, you'll eventually get on ARVs, you know, because that was one of the future plans for that arm. Um, and that would be sort of the only way they could be assured, you know, that was the way they could be assured of getting the treatment that they otherwise wouldn't be getting. So, well, that would have been, you know, I think the ethics of the clinical trial, you'd want no one to feel coerced into being in the trial compared to getting the standard of care. So in this case, in the places where um, couples were recruited, antiretroviral therapy was becoming widely available through PEPFAR and through the Global Fund. So I, I don't, the standard for starting was um, at a CD4 cell count of 250 at the time. Those were WHO standards. So they wouldn't have been started at a higher CD4 cell count, but nobody could have told them at the time that there was um, benefit, health benefit to them at the, from starting at a higher CD4 cell count early. So I, I certainly hope that nobody felt coerced to enter the trial based upon you know, more, better availability of antiretroviral therapy. Everybody was in a setting at the time where they should have had access by WHO guidelines. So then why do you think in the U.S. it was so hard to get recruits? Well, there was, I think there was only one U.S. site that opened, um, and I think people that were eligible had ideas on what they wanted. Either they didn't want to be randomized to start therapy, or they definitely wanted to be randomized to start therapy, and that was, you know. Remember that the deferred group had to wait till 250. And by then, <clears throat> guidelines in the U.S. had said 350 or less treat. And right. so I think there was pushback from some of the only one side. You're right. So, so yes, in the U.S. at the time, <clears throat> guidelines would have been to start, the trend would have been to start at a higher CD4 cell count. So perhaps that contributed to um, the lower enrollment in the U.S.
Thanks. Bruce. So thank you for your marathon talks. I mean, it was, it was great. <laughs> um, I had a quite, also had a question about 052 a little slightly differently. I, the, the patients who were recruited were mainly recruited from sub-Saharan Africa, if I read that correctly. And India. Pardon? And India. And in India. Um, one has to, I, just, I guess I wonder about the generalizability of the study to Western Europe and, and the United States if genomically the two populations differ, particularly with, with regard to vulnerability or susceptibility of infection to the receiving part, the uninfected partners. Uh, particularly, you know, one could think of CCR5 polymorphisms or something to explain that. So has that, is there any way, it, it, I guess the question is whether that was tested in this population, whether there were, there were some genomic studies done to, to assess the vulnerability of the, of the participants. Uh, and if not, or, and if so, would that give us some pause in applying those results to um, the United States or Western Europe? Right. So I guess the questions, so probably nobody, I think nobody knows the specific answers to those questions right now. There could be differences um, in clade of virus. I think probably, you know, sub-Saharan Africa having more non-B clades in circulation. Um, there could be um, HLA, general HLA differences um, between participants in this study and and, and you know, North Americans who have HIV or who um, who are in partnerships, who are uninfected but in partnerships with people who have HIV. And then I guess, you know, another thing that, so those things are unknown um, and there might be, there probably could be genetic testing done on the individuals. I, I think usually in research trials that requires a special consent form, so I don't know if the individuals were consented to that, but certainly specimens were available if somebody thought that it would be important. The, um, the other thing that, you know, people are discussing right now is whether there's a difference in antiretroviral therapies um, as a preventative tool in heterosexual partnerships compared to, um, you know, MSM partnerships, which, you know, transmission among MSM being more important in, in North America right now with our epidemic right now. And I don't know um, that people think that these results or that they would be that they believe that the results can't be transferred and generalized to all populations, but certainly um, we don't know. It would be very difficult to do this type of trial again. Um, and certainly if somebody thought that a randomized controlled trial should be done in MSM, I'd have to, in MSM couples, I'd have to say that that's a really hard thing to, to conceive of, but it might be something that some people would like to, to have more evidence on. So we have lots of question cards. I'm going to take these three questions at the mic, and let's do quick questions, quick answers, so we can get to as many of the questions as we can. I'll just go in this direction, please. Um, this might be completely behind the curve, but I thought it was really interesting that you had a higher rate of transmission from woman to man yeah. than man to woman. And maybe I have an old sense that it was somewhat more difficult for go from female to male on any comments yeah, regarding there three, that? There were three question cards about that, and if you could also comment on the state of circumcision in the patients. A lot of the men who were uninfected were not circumcised. Um, at the time that they were enrolled in the study, that wasn't, uh, you know, that's only something that is, is scaling up now in um, the low-income settings where, where, these where these couples were recruited from. So that 
could explain. It wasn't a statistical difference, the male to female, the female to male, but certainly female to male was, uh, there were more infections that went in that direction. So many men in the trial, the majority were uncircumcised throughout the course of the study, and that might partially explain. And I'd heard that there was no female to male transmission in circumcised men. Is that accurate? I don't know. I, don't, I remember there were very few, that's for sure. Uh, not a question, but a comment. Uh, I was in a, at a Gilead function two weeks ago in Denver, and I was surrounded by colleagues from pretty geographically diverse areas in the United States, some from Puerto Rico, one from South Africa. And with respect to PrEP, there was um, an enormous amount of concern that um, in serodiscordant couples here in the United States who were savvy enough to interpret some of this data, some of them were running out of their Truvada before they were running out of other components of their antiretroviral therapy and using it inappropriately off-label um, after having reviewed that information. And so Gilead took a big slap on the hand and ironically they uh, hid behind the pharma rock that they don't they, they normally don't, and said we only donated the pills, which is very true, but I think as an HIV treating community, we have to be acutely aware that our patients are very savvy, and we should be looking at their filling practices very closely. Yeah. Maybe reinforcing if the viral loads are undetectable, they don't have to worry about their partner as much anymore. Yeah. I'm coming from New York, and... Uh, um, having worked and uh, helped establish uh, a clinic for transgender patients. I think that, that you know, in, in a, as a common question regarding your, your community viral load and in terms of risk assessment and the, the recent suggestion that PrEP may not be needed, I think if, if the assumption is that uh, all partners are linked to treated partners, then that's fine, but that's not the case, and I think that uh, certainly there are very high-risk populations out there that can benefit from PrEP. And, uh, and especially when you're looking at sex workers, when you're looking at high-risk um, communities in terms of sexual networks, um, I think particularly when you're looking at those viral load uh, epidemiologic maps, really those are the areas where PrEP can be applied, and I think it's, it's really not, not uh, really being discussed at the, in this kind of general setting. Mm -hmm. A couple of questions following up on 052. You got to most of them that were on the question cards, one of which was related. Do they track concomitant STDs, um, and is there any report on that, or will that be coming so out? So you're talking about 052? In, in 052, right. They did, and those data should become available. Okay. And, and then that was related to condom use, which I know the study encouraged, but uh, there's no way to really track that, correct? I, I think that they did assess that. So again, self-reported condom use right. by the partner should be available. Okay. And then a related question, um, just asking about a strategy to increase surveillance for acute HIV, uh, given the results of 052 in the sense that um, are we attempting to, we're going to get to this in the case studies, but um, how many of the patients who seroconverted showed up with acute HIV syndrome, do you know? How many people who seroconverted? I, again, I don't know the answer. Um, I don't know whether that was, whether it was also part, in addition to coming up for regular serologic assessments, which would have been standard protocol, 
how much they impressed upon them the importance of, you know, coming in if, with symptoms related to acute retroviral syndrome, I don't know. Right. I think Mike Cohen would have thought right. of that. But yeah, yeah, I'm sure he did, actually. Um, okay, so this is now segueing into the community viral load question. I think you did a nice job of creating a balanced perspective. And on one hand, it's a nice tool, and the data from San Francisco is instructive. But this question sort of gets back to the practicality of that in the sense of if you don't know who's out there, they could be having, you know, they, they, if you don't measuring it, you don't know. And so, uh, and it goes back somewhat to the question I asked Laura earlier, how do you know what the true incidence is in a neighborhood? Um, what kind of projects or plans do you have to sort of assess fi case finding and incidence determination? Well, I think public health authorities worldwide, we, I mean, one of the laboratory tools that we need is something that can assess incidence in a cross-sectional sample. You know, all of these studies, you know, if you're going to do a combination prevention intervention where you're going to test and treat a village in, you know, South Africa and, and scale up circumcision and then show how much each of those components contributed to changing incidence, you can't you know, the whole testing, serial testing of a cohort gets expensive and time-consuming, and what we really need is something that you can just draw samples and and um, in one time assess whether it's new infection, meaning acquired in the past three months, or, or um, prevalent infection. And we lack that tool currently. The detuned assays, the BED assay, hasn't really proven to be uh, useful in a broad, uh, in all the contexts that it needs to be useful. So we don't have that um, right now. Right. And the question, this question is about any kind of secondary analysis. This may go to OFAF2 or community viral load, but secondary analysis to look for the association between the level of viremia in the uh, infected person transmitting. Was there a gradation like sort of Tom Quinn showed in 2000 in Uganda? So those data were not in the initial release, but I expect that they will be available. There was, I mean, I think it's important, though, to point out, since most care guidelines are driven by CD4 cell counts right. and as a measure of immune status, there wasn't an association between CD4 cell count and transmission to the partner. But viral load, I, they checked viral load, and they should be able to analyze So that's that. interesting, because that's exactly the follow-up question on this card. Um, and that is, do you think that, should there be an association, which I would have guessed there would be, you can't comment, but let's say there is this gradation that people with higher viral loads, say 50,000, had a higher probability of transmitting in the delayed group than those who had a baseline viral load of, say, 1,000. Could you imagine that guidelines might change uh, for higher CD4 counts to recommend therapy uh, based on viral load status? They might. <laughs> Yeah, they I think, might. But the guidelines are largely for an individual health outcome, right? Correct. And I don't know that they've taken into consideration yet. Well, uh, as of the January 2011, they had not, except as an incidental uh, factor. It's interesting. Okay. Um, can we say that um, areas with decreased incidence of HIV are examples where test and treat benefits are reducing, they call it herd viral load. I kind of like that term. Um, thus decreasing the incidence. In other words, in San Francisco, if they were tracking this over years, I think your graph showed this, that when you decrease community viral load, you decrease incidence. And 
Are there a lot of other data sets that confirm that? So the two, well, maybe, I think San Francisco has been trying to monitor this for years. And I think that they've also, you know, over the past several years, had a very, very aggressive effort to in case identification, so expanded HIV testing. So I think if you have those two things going together, very, very expanded HIV testing programs, meaning emergency departments, you know, STD clinics, community-based health centers throughout the Castro district or anywhere, you know, in the neighborhoods where you know that there's HIV, if you're really pushing the HIV testing efforts and you're seeing your cases go down, I think that that starts to look like solid data pointing to decrease in incidence. So I start to believe that, and it's also very consistent with the reports coming out of British Columbia, Vancouver, where they have a lot of injection drug user-driven epidemics, and they've shown that in, I think, a reasonably representative community cohort of injection drug users that reduced viral load, community viral load is associated with reduced incidence. And that's tough because syringe injection programs could also have influenced that outcome significantly. Right. Now transitioning to more of the guidelines for testing, if you're following a patient with HIV and you know they have a discordant couple, how often would you recommend that the discordant partner, the seronegative partner, be tested for HIV? I think every three months makes sense to me. I mean, if they're sexually active, and certainly I think it's becoming more and more important for them to understand what might be acute retroviral syndrome. I mean, some of these things aren't, you know, there's not an evidence base for this. It's going to be what makes sense. I would think every three months, maybe every six months, but every three months would make sense. If the index patient is undetectable, do you think it doesn't change your opinion too much? Well, I think then I would change the interval, maybe six months. All right. This is related. This is more about the overall STD screens. This clinician says that many of their patients are over the age of 40, aren't really sexually active that much at that point. I'm not sure if that's an editorial comment. And wondering if yearly STD screening is still required. In other words, should you adjust your screening based on activity or perceived activity? I think that it is reasonable to judge the interval of testing based upon reported sexual activity. So women, you know, the current STD treatment guidelines for 2010 do say that testing doesn't need to differ. There's no basis for anything but age-driven criteria for chlamydia testing for women, you know, based upon HIV status. So I think that following, you know, the 25-age cutoff is reasonable when that's your community's recommendation for age-based testing for chlamydia. There are some states where chlamydia is highly prevalent, and perhaps they have more chlamydia testing dollars, although these days nobody gets extra money from the federal government to test for STDs. But there are some places that have documented that they have fairly high prevalence going up to age 30, and then if that happens to be a community recommendation, you might consider that age cut. But a 40-, 50-, 60-year-old woman I don't think should routinely get annual screening for chlamydia. I don't think that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, this is like everything else, isn't it? We have guidelines that are generalizable. 
But for a clinician in their practice with an individual patient, common sense dictates that you adjust based on their practices and what the community is demonstrating. I think that's very reason. Um, and we're going to hear more about this concept of SBIRT. You all heard that term before, SBIRT screening, uh, behavioral intervention treatment, that type of thing. So th this all fits with prevention for positives as well as substance use and alcohol and all that. We're going to hear about that in the next talk somewhat. Um, does community viral load overlap with syphilis, for example, in the uh, San Francisco area? They, in San Francisco, has very high rates of um, primary and secondary syphilis among MSM, and I have not seen their incidence or primary secondary syphilis data overlaid on their HIV incidence data. But I know that during those years where incidence of HIV was shown to go down, they were having a very large syphilis yeah, epidemic. So, so I don't think, right. I don't think that you can, I think that that sort of, that takes away the syphilis factor, which we know is important and makes one more convinced that treatment really might be exerting that effect. It's, I think it's still an open question. I, I think that would make sense too, right? Because it, it's more of a surrogate for condom use, I would guess, than it would be for, the nature of transmission would be for sexual activity. In other words, the viral load community goes down, less transmission of HIV, but it doesn't really comment at all on other STDs unless there's condom use or less sexual activity, right? Yeah. yeah. I haven't, I have not seen data that specifically you in, use the syphilis data in the same data set. So it, it's, it would be interesting to know that. There's about three or four questions I'm going to postpone for tomorrow because Gina Marazzo is going to talk about the STD guidelines that you mentioned. Uh, so we'll, we'll get to the STD specific screening questions tomorrow. And I'll finish with this question in the back of the room because the other questions are about how to pay for this. You know, how do you, do, how do you pay for all this? And the answer is it's just magic, right? We're used to magic in our lives, and so we're going to count on magic. And you can put whatever expletive before magic that you want, um, please. In our clinic, we did not have any problem screening for chlamydia, gonorrhea in women because it's part of the pap smear. But we never screened for chlamydia and gonorrhea for males for so many years until we started last year and through the recommendation of our site visitor. So out of the 67 that we screened, none was positive except for one who had a urethral discharge. And its test is $40. So we spent more than 2,500 to screen for negative meals. So as Dr. Seg said, do we need to keep screening or do we need to ask, is there a symptom before we do anything, especially for males? Thank you. So I think somebody, if a man comes in with a discharge and you test, a urethral discharge and you test them for gonorrhea and chlamydia, that's really symptom-driven testing. It's not screening. The screening would be, I would define that as, you know, doing a test in somebody who's asymptomatic. So it sounds like from your database or that you've just presented, it's not um, reasonable in your population to screen. But I would ask you whether you were doing urine, if you were screening for urethral infections in men that might have been receptive anal partners, for example, there isn't necessarily um, 
overlap between urethral gonorrhea in MSM and rectal gonorrhea or oral gonorrhea. So I think if you're going to screen, make sure that you ask them what about their sexual behavior and screen the right orifice. That's a great way to end. If you learn nothing else, screen the right orifice. You heard it here first. So with, <laughs> excellent. So thanks for.